In this episode of Real Christianity, I confront the unbiblical concept of free will. That is, do Christians have the freedom in and of themselves to choose to follow Christ, or is it God who chooses to change our hearts, makes us willing, and reconciles us to himself? I answer those questions. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge. Today's episode is titled Romans 3, 27 through 28, The Fallacy of Free Will. Now, as you know, this show is an audio and video ministry of relearn.org, where our mission is to bring the church back to the Bible. Question for you, have you picked up our short 12-page PDF titled How to Study Your Bible? It's a great resource uh, that you can learn basically all of the fundamentals of biblical interpretation. You can pick up a copy at relearn.org forward slash study. Okay, let's go ahead and dive in. Over the past several months, we have unearthed together much of Romans. We've talked our way through some of the deep gospel-centric realities of Romans 1 through 3, and Paul spent these three chapters upholding the law, making men fully aware of their sinful state, uh, demonstrating their inability to justify themselves before God, and revealing that forgiveness, redemption, and ultimately reconciliation with God is only found in faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in my last uh, message or sermon or podcast, depending on where you're listening to, uh, we worked through Romans 3, 25b through 26, where Paul explains uh, how God defends his righteousness through the revelation of the gospel or through revealing the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ. That is, in the gospel, God makes it perfectly clear that sin will either be laid upon the sinner or that sin will be laid upon the Savior. But essentially, no sin will go unpunished. Uh, if there's any doubt that God had lost his integrity or was lacking integrity in regards to his justice upon sin, that was all clarified at the cross. God hates sin, and he will not allow any of that sin to go without being punished. Ultimately, we learn that even though God is a God of mercy, he doesn't compromise his justice to be merciful. And so, uh, even the ones who receive mercy, they receive that mercy at the expense of Christ. And so, no sin will go unpunished. In other words, we learn that uh, at the cross, in the gospel, uh, God has found a way to execute perfect justice uh, upon sin, while at the same time securing justification for the one who has faith in Jesus. And Romans 3.25-26 says, This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Namely, God in one single act, one single act becomes the executor of justice and the justifier of the executable. Uh, we can't overlook the wonder of that reality. This is a magnificent gospel truth. In the justice of God seen at the cross, we find the salvation of sinners. It's, it's something that you would never expect to find. I'm going to say that sentence just one more time. Uh, in the justice of God seen at the cross, we find the salvation of sinners. It, it should be shocking to you when you hear that reality. Uh, it's like finding light 
in the darkest part of a cave. It's the last thing that you would expect, but it's exactly what you get in the character of God. So ultimately, the gospel, we see this beautiful collide of perfect justice and perfect love right at the center of the cross. And so today, we look at the first part of Paul's conclusion of his uh, three-chapter or three-part presentation of the gospel, and he begins with a vital truth that's painted across the scriptures. This isn't something you would just see in Romans. It's something you would see from Genesis to Revelation. And this is that man shall not boast before God. That's really a big theme of this episode. Uh, This truth is really anchored in the previous verse that states uh, that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's essentially eliminating man's uh, ability to attribute any part of his salvation to himself. So Romans 3, 27 through 28, that's our text today. It says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All right, as we learned over the past several episodes here, legalism is the default position of mankind. It's the default position of the flesh. We want to earn our standing with God. This is something that we see, obviously, in the religious acts of humanity. In all of human-made religions, we want to earn our salvation. It's difficult for the flesh to swallow the idea that man cannot do anything to justify himself before God or procuring his own salvation. You can't even bring a penny. You can't bring anything really to the treasure chest of grace. So salvation is completely a work of God. Jonathan Edwards once said, quote, you can contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Now, before I dive into what I believe is the most common form of boasting among modern Christians, uh, I wanted to share a few verses standing against the sinful tendency of human boasting. So we're going to read a few of them back to back here. Now, first, boasting, let's define it just for a second. It's really the idea of self-congratulations. It's uh, self-praise. And so 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, Quote, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. End quote. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Quote, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord, end quote. 1 Corinthians 1.31, quote, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And there are many more, but this is just a, a, a sample of the reality that we are not to be boasting before God. Now, the problem with boasting or the problem with being a boaster is that a boastful heart often doesn't recognize that they're being boastful because self-love is blinding. And so we don't even see our own boasting oftentimes. And so today I want to speak to a group of people that are in the church. You might be one of them who believe wrongly about salvation and how it occurs. 
and unknowingly are boasting. Now, let me explain this. These are people who believe that salvation is not by works uh, of the law, meaning they're not following the law to earn their salvation. Uh, they, They believe that salvation is only by faith in Christ alone. However, these people uh, will say, quote, you must choose to believe. You must choose to believe, end quote. Uh, That is that they believe that man must exercise independent uh, from, uh, from God upon their own free will, this decision to believe and exercise and put their faith in Jesus Christ, namely that that man has the ability within himself, in and of himself, intrinsically to choose to be saved. And according to their view, um, that saving cannot occur without their consent, and that they must have a decisive action in order to be saved. Does that make sense? This is how a lot of modern Christians think about this concept. In other words, these people who say they do not believe that salvation is by works, turn faith into a moral work. Let me explain what I mean by that. Morality is about choices. Now, yes, it's also about actions, but before it's about actions, it's also about choices. It's about choices that make actions. And there are good choices and bad choices, and there are obedient choices and disobedient choices. And in the issue of salvation, they believe that they can either obey the gospel by believing or by by choosing to put their faith in Christ or disobey the gospel uh, by choosing to reject or not put their faith in Christ. And this is a common way, a paradigm that the modern church looks at this. But in either scenario, their, their sovereign choice, their sovereign decision becomes the catalyst for their own salvation. Stay with me here. In other words, what what they realize or what they don't realize is that they believe that a moral work of choice must precede their own salvation. This is really what's happening here. I'm going to say that again. They believe that a moral work of choice must precede uh, their own salvation. God cannot save them without their consent to exercise that decisive action, to choose and place their faith in and of themselves into Jesus Christ and to make that decision to become a Christian. Now, when you point this out to these people in the church, uh, they quickly say, well, hey, faith is not a work. Well, they're right. Uh, Faith is not a work, but a moral decision to exercise that faith is. Okay, so let let me explain here. The question you have to be asking right now is, How do you separate having faith from a decision to have faith? That's an important question. How do you separate having faith in Jesus from the decision of having faith in Jesus? Well, the the Bible gives us some good answers here. The answer to that question is really rooted in a theological misunderstanding of the origin of saving faith. Okay, saving faith is not something that sinful humanity possesses. You are not born with the capacity to produce saving faith. Saving faith is uh, something that is given to us, okay? Because we're born in a condition of sin, um, our, our, our will, our desires are ruled uh, by our highest, um, I, well, I'll say it this way. 
we are ruled by our highest desires and our highest desire is self. And until you've been given a new heart, that won't change. And this is why I often say to people, um, we have a will, it's not free. We have a will and it's enslaved to sin. It's enslaved to self. And the idea of having a free will is ridiculous. It's not in scripture. You are either in bondage to sin and Satan and will to self and the flesh, or you are a slave of Christ. In fact, that's the term that the Bible uses to describe Christians often is a doulos. It's uh, the Greek word for slave, a slave of Christ. And so, yes, we do as humans have what we call mathematical probability, which we often talk about as faith. It's more like confidence or reliance. We can put our trust into taxi drivers and police officers and bus, you know, bus drivers and airplane pilots or whatever it is, because we have accumulated enough data to make a decision that we can rely upon the outcome of the situation. But we don't in and of ourselves have the intrinsic reality of saving faith within us. We don't have the, the kind of faith to relinquish the authority of our lives to Christ that that doesn't come with the system because we're born of Adam, we're born into sin, we're born spiritually dead. We don't have the faith to give up everything and follow Christ. We don't have it in us to basically say, I'm willing to die for Christ's sake right now on my own free will to do so. Uh, No, true faith, potent faith, uh, saving faith is a gift of God. And that's exactly what the scriptures teach. In other words, what these people do is they misattribute, they misattribute their ability to have faith in Christ to themselves in when in reality, their faith that they do have in Christ is actually a gift of God, not of themselves. And this is what Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that, purpose clause, no one may boast. Now, I could give you the Greek breakdown and the defense for why the demonstrative pronoun this in the phrase, this is not of your own doing, is grammatically referring to the faith and the grace um, in the previous sentence, but I want to avoid the technicalities. I want to approach this in a more pastoral manner. So just join along with me here. You see, saving faith is a a faith that's built upon a contrite spirit of repentance. Okay, this is the type of faith um, that comes as a spiritual response or a spiritual result of a new heart. Okay, the type of faith that we're talking about requires a repentant, contrite heart over sin. Now, you're not going to ever receive that type of response until you have been given a new heart. And so when a person hears the gospel, and I mean really hears it, I mean uh, the type of person when suddenly they are deeply convicted of the sin that just yesterday didn't bother them at all. I'm talking real life-shaking, all of a sudden they're spiritually alive, they see their sin for the first time, radical repentance, they're made aware, they're trusting in the righteousness of Christ, they need to be found righteous. They understand this. They have an immense desire to put everything on Christ and they're ready to die for Jesus. That type of faith, that type of faith is saving faith. That's the kind of stuff that happens 
at the end of a gospel presentation when the Lord saves a person and gives them a spiritual resurrection. This type of faith is not natural faith to mankind. And we know this because what does it say? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, quote, the natural person, that is the unborn, unborn again person, okay, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Did you hear that? Just hear this, please. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, in other words, saving faith becomes the evidence that God has already given a person a new heart. There's already been a spiritual resurrection. What I'm gonna say here is just follow along. This is logical. Spiritual actions cannot precede spiritual life. If you are spiritually dead, you cannot expect spiritual responses to occur until you've been spiritually resurrected. And we cannot spiritually resurrect ourselves. That would be like telling somebody that you've born yourself again. It's a very ridiculous statement. The reason Jesus uses the metaphor or reality of being born again is because everybody can relate with it. And everybody knows that you had no involvement in choosing to be born. And so we know John chapter three says that the spirit moves like the wind and he goes where he wishes and he is going to save and bring that spiritual life to those that he pleases, and we have no involvement with it whatsoever. Okay, too often we believe that salvation works like this. We often believe that uh, repentance plus faith equals salvation, um, or equals born again. Okay, we, we, we think that repentance plus faith produces a born-again spirit. That, that's how America thinks about salvation, that we need to make a choice to repent, a choice to have faith, and as a result, we will be born again. Billy Graham wrote a book on this that's terrible, titled How to Be Born Again, because he follows this false way of thinking. Um, the Bible teaches it the exact opposite. Okay, the Bible says that you are born again, which will result in repentance and saving faith. Because you can't have true repentance and saving faith if you're spiritually dead, because spiritual actions cannot precede spiritual life. Okay, so this is really important. What can a corpse do? Because that's what the Bible says about our souls prior to Christ and having the life of Christ, that we are spiritually dead. What can a corpse do? I know my preaching professor, Dr. Stephen Lawson, would say, uh, the only thing that a corpse can do is stink. Uh, you can't do anything else. You can, you can stink. Um, the clear teaching of scripture is that all humanity is born spiritually dead. Uh, that, and we've talked about spiritual death before. It's the separation of, of the soul from God. We are not in union with God, which is the whole reason Jesus had to be sent because he is the reconciler or the one, the mediator uh, to bring us and reconcile us back to God. Um, I think about Hark the Herald Angels Sings, the, the lyric in there, it says, God and sinners reconciled. Th this is what the gospel is about, but we're born not reconciled, which is spiritual death. It's separation of our souls from, from God. And so, uh, again, spiritually dead people cannot do spiritual things because they're spiritually dead. And they certainly cannot save themselves. 
Uh, that, that's a, a crazy idea to think about. They must, by God's sovereign will, first be spiritually resurrected. So God must act first. Uh, and that is where we get the gift uh, through this spiritual resurrection of faith, saving faith. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 tells us about this. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In John 6, 44, Jesus clarifies this for us as well. He says, uh, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Just, did you hear that? Just for a second right there. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Okay, so we know that right there, just if that verse right there, we know that that God must act first. Now, uh, why is this so important that we understand this? And, and how does it relate with our text here in Romans? I want to just read the text one more time so you can see this. It's Romans 3, 27 through 28. It says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. By a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, allow me to offer you just a hypothetical story to illustrate why believing a person can choose to have faith, saving faith, uh, in Christ, apart from being born again already, and why this is so dangerous, and I would even say sinful. Okay, so I'm going to just kind of look at my notes here and give you a little bit of a hypothetical. If a man died and stood before God, and God asked him, and he said, John, why are you here? John would say, well, because I believed in your son and his atonement on the cross covered my sins and uh, his righteousness has been given to me by faith. Well, then God would say, this is correct. Uh, but what if God asked a follow-up question and said something like, John, why are you here, but your brother Gary is not? Both of you heard the gospel, but yet you alone are present before me. Um, to, to this, John would say something like, well, I believed and Gary didn't. Um, but then God might respond and say, but why did you believe and why did Gary not believe? And if John holds to the belief that we're talking about today, that salvation is a free choice of man, then, then John must say to God, well, God, I guess that I was wiser than Gary was. I, I chose to follow Christ and Gary was a fool. And I was obedient to the gospel and Gary was not. Um, Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, whenever we think that we have been performing any good works, we begin at once to boast, end quote. See, John's response, as you can see, uh, offers grounds for boasting. Yes, it does give credit uh, for, for, uh, to God for the salvation that's made possible, but it gives ultimate credit to John for taking the moral action of choice to make that salvation operable. Do you understand that? Ultimately, in this view of having the free will outside of being born again to make a decision to follow Christ where you essentially 
are the catalyst for your own new birth, uh, John can boast about being wiser and being more obedient than Gary uh, for making the correct moral decision to activate his salvation through uh, directing his belief toward Christ. He can do that. He can actually boast. In a very real sense, when we boast, even if it's obscure, like in the smallest corner of our heart, we steal a portion of God's glory. We reassign a portion of honor to ourselves, which is reserved for God alone. And so John 3.27 says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You can't even receive one thing unless it's given to you from heaven. That's just a pretty important reality to take in consideration here. That is, everything that we do have, including our faith, is a gift of God. And that's why Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And he who began a good work in you will finish it. This is why we can trust that we're not going to lose our salvation because we're not going to lose our faith because we believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that says that God will sustain us because he is the sustainer and the captain of our faith. And it was a gift of God and that we are his child and he will sustain us. And this is why I'm so frustrated at these people during their baptisms wearing these t-shirts that say, I have decided. That's literally what it reads in the front of these baptism shirts. I have decided. And it causes everybody that's around them to applaud them for their decision. Good job, John, for making that decision. Instead, those t-shirts should absolutely say, God saved me. Because then the applause goes not to John, but it goes to God. Oh, God is so merciful for saving that sinner. John, man, praise God for that reality. And so the correct answer, the correct answer to the question that God originally asked John, which was, why are you here and Gary is not? Okay, the correct answer to that question is this, because it pleased you to save me. It's your will that I am here. If it were up to me, I would have not trusted in your son. But you chose to sovereignly pour out your grace and your mercy upon my soul and, and to give me repentance, and to give me faith, and to cause me the ability to even choose to follow your son, Jesus. And for that, I will praise you forever. See, what it does is it changes our understanding of grace. It amplifies and magnifies mercy. It makes us realize that we didn't choose God, but God actually chose us. It makes us appreciate salvation even more. And this is important because, again, the text is, where is your boasting? It's excluded. And so we cannot boast. We need to understand that God is sovereign over salvation and that free will truly is a fallacy. So hopefully this episode was helpful for you guys, that it was edifying, helping you understand, again, the basics of salvation theology, which is called soteriology. The Greek word for salvation is soteria. And so soteriology is the study of salvation. So my hope is that you would be continued to be strengthened and have greater biblical and theological literacy. And that is the, the mission uh, is to bring these people that follow our podcast back to the Bible and strengthen their relationship with God. On that note, thank you for listening to this episode of Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge, and I'll see you next time. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Also, would you consider leaving a review? You don't need to write anything. Just tap the stars in your podcast app. But if you would write a review, we will read it. Real Christianity is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, and of course, at relearn.org. You can also follow along on social media. Just search for relearn.org or Dale Partridge on just about every social media platform. Lastly, if you feel led to support our ministry financially as we fight to bring the church back to the Bible, you can always do that at relearn.org forward slash donate. Donate.